Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis in New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. Nuggets, welcome to the Bodhini podcast. Uh, happy Mother's Day, first of all. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So you interviewed uh, a number of women entrepreneurs in Detroit. and. You know, this morning I was thinking about that and I was thinking these women started these businesses and they're so they're amazing businesses while being some of them being mothers, I'm assuming, and with the pressures of being a Bengali, a Bangladeshi mom and starting these businesses. Uh, and, and I'm assuming a lot of them had the same the requirements of being a Bangladeshi mom and they started these businesses, which is on top of uh, the stress of starting a business. Uh, they had they had all of that. And did that come up in any of the interviews? Yeah, absolutely. A lot of um, things that I've seen in Metro Detroit growing up here is that the women are already supporting, you know, their families and sometimes their husbands who are business owners. But then when they open their own businesses, they're kind of quiet about it. And it's kind of on the uh, down low for many years. And I think that recently in the past 10 years or so, women are being a lot more unapologetic about who they are and embracing their motherhood and their entrepreneurial roles. It's not, um, it's not taboo anymore to like do both. And I think the wonderful thing about Bengali women is that they often try to hold, you know, hold on to both of those things at one time. They, they don't forget about their families because of their businesses. They strengthen their businesses because of their families. And whether that looks like putting their kids to work and having them help, we know, and putting all their family members to, to work in their businesses or um, making time for their family and then also doing their businesses afterwards. So, you know, people have come up with unique formulas that work best for them to be able to do all their roles. And interesting that you say they kept it on the hush. Do you, do you think that's because they, they don't want, you know, the whole Manushki Bolbit, you know, concept, they don't want people to think they're neglecting their duties as, as moms? I think that it's a mix of things. I think that in the Metro Detroit area, oftentimes when you see businesses being highlighted, it's the men, right? Because a lot of times in our Bengali communities, they're the ones in the public spaces. They're the ones doing the interviews. They're the ones at the, you know, Bangladesh Avenue ceremonies. You know, a lot of time the women are home with the kids or not expected to be there. They're not invited to be there. And so then, you know, women have traditionally held on to supporting, supportive roles. Um, and some people feel like they don't need to be in those spaces, right? But I think with the younger generation coming up, people are taking more ownership in those spaces and not afraid to give interviews, not afraid to be in those spaces. And social media plays a huge role in that because you know people can still be private people and be a face behind a brand without having to put themselves too much in the public space um, at the same time being able to have successful businesses. So they can have a clothing store or a baking shop and people can private message them. They can, you know, contact people to their comfort level on their own schedules. It's not as, it's not as busy and it's not as, uh, you, you know, they don't have to keep up as, with that on a daily grind, you know, like a brick and mortar. And so Bangladesh women, I think it, it's just a mix of things, but they're very um, creative about how they do their businesses and making it work for them while also giving back to the community. What made you want to start this project, speaking to Bangladeshi uh, women entrepreneurs? For me, it was more about being able to see myself in the community and uplifting the community at the same time. And so, as as I mentioned, a lot of times, you know, the, our 
fathers or uncles or men in our community are the public face. And I think that there's a growing number of young professionals who have gone away to school, have built up their resources. And, you know, most of the time they're all coming back to the community and finding ways to uplift the community, whether they're professionals or whether that's in in the sense of businesses. So the people that I interviewed, um, they all want to give back to the community. That's the one huge underlying theme, right? So they found that there was something missing in the community and they wanted to be able to provide those services because they know the community best. And to me, I think those are stories worth highlighting. And, and it's like sometimes in, in, in the public spaces, you know, we don't realize that we're giving back to our community and these are stories that should be told, but they really are, right? And whatever is happening in the Bengali community is probably happening across other Metro Detroit and also immigrant communities across the U.S., right? So, you know, we know that when women are opening businesses, they're thinking about their communities and uplifting people at the same time. But sometimes they don't realize that it's a big deal. And I think it is a big deal. And I think those are stories worth highlighting. And so a lot of times, uh, like in the Bengali community, there's restaurants, grocery shops, there's clothing stores, but we don't really know about the other businesses because they're not highlighted as much. They're not as visible as much. Um, And to me, it's important that even if if a business is just on social media, it's still giving back to the community. So that's still worth being highlighted. Absolutely. And the other thing I noticed from the list of uh, interviews and, and listening to some of them is some of them are, some of the businesses are, are easier to start up and maybe start up in a, in a few weeks from home. But some of them require a lot of due diligence and administrative process, like the home care service, for, for example. That doesn't happen overnight. I have a friend that owns a home care service here, and it takes years to do the research and get that set up. So that takes so much perseverance also. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's a, important that you mention that story because, you know, Mafruza Begum, who opened a home, home care service, she did it because her own father needed those services. And when he wasn't able to receive services in Bangla, and, you know, a lot of times Bangla communities, we don't put our parents in nursing homes when they need extra health and support. We try to find other avenues for supporting them within the comforts of our own home and our communities and with people who get it. And so when she didn't find that for her father, her mother ended up taking her father to Bangladesh to get extra support from family and relatives who were able to help take care of him. And that inspired her to think like, if this is happening to me, then this must be happening to so many other families. And in Bengali communities, a lot of time our immigrant children were always, we're the backbone of our parents, right? We're the ones helping them fill out applications and forms and it, whether it's our parents or other people in the community, um, that's a huge responsibility on us. And we feel indebt- indebted to them to give back to them and help them and support them. And so Mafruza was one of those stories that it was, it was not only just a need for her family, but she knew that this must be a community need. And so let me open the service that will help people and impact them in a larger form. Um, so that's, that's how her idea you know, started. Um, and she's been doing her business for five years. And I think even her story, like no one really knows that She's had home care service and that it's growing slowly and it's focused on people who can speak Bangla. What was uh, your most memorable interview or if you had to, if, the one that keeps coming back to you? I think that definitely Mafruza's story is the one that really resonates a lot with our community um, and with me as well. Because when we look at, you know, where we started, where we're going, it always comes back to a full circle moment, right? We want to be able to as Bengalis, we're always thinking about how do we 
uplift ourselves, but the, but the community at the same time, we're never really thinking just about ourselves. Um, and I think that's a common thread and a common theme also amongst all the Bangladeshi women entrepreneurs is that it's not just about themselves. It's not just about their families. It's about making sure that people are taken care of, that, um, that we also, as we go into our second and third generations in, in the United States, that we're building community at the same time, we're building resources. We have places that we can go when we need help. We don't have to look outside the community. So anything, potentially anything that you need at this moment, whether it's a, you know, tal, you know, getting a tal made for a wedding, or it's a home care service or some jewelry you need for a special occasion, you should be able to call someone within the community or find it on online, you know, versus going to Etsy and, or be able to go to a shop and get that product from people who came from these communities who understand what it's like to, you know, sometimes live in low income uh, spaces and not have resources that you need, not have the same quality of resources you need and being un- underrepresented as Bengali communities overall, right? Being left out of the um, South Asian di- diaspora, a lot of times, you know, people are not talking about our stories. And so these uh, entrepreneurs all kind of have that in mind. And now they're doing amazing things on behalf of the community, but beyond the community as well. I'm going to apologize about being ignorant about the number of Bangladeshis in Detroit. I should know this. Can you, can you t- talk about that a little bit? Because we're so, I'm so New York focused, but how many Bengalis are in New York, are in Detroit? Um, where are they living? And wh- when did like the sort of immigration to Detroit start? Yeah, that's an excellent question, actually. So um, there is estimated about 70,000 Bangladeshis wow. in the metro Detroit area. Many of them live in Hamtramck in Detroit. And a lot of times after, you know, starting off in those uh, smaller communities, they move out to the suburbs. So they're living in Warren, Troy, Sterling Heights, Rochester Hills, some even in Bloomfield Hills, which is a much more affluent neighborhood, a lot of times for better socioeconomic opportunities once they're able to do that. Um, and a lot of um, the, the community is made up of two types of, you know, Bangladeshi communities, I would say. So some of them are newcomers, right? So in, in the past, most of our families all started off in New York, right? Everyone started their lives in New York. But now we've seen for the past, um, you know, 10, 15 years that people are coming straight to Hamtramck. They're able to get a job within three to six months because there's a lot of people here um, that can help one another. For example, you don't have to know Bangla. You don't have to know English to be able to get a job anymore. You don't have to have a car to be able to get to work. You don't have to know English to be able to get groceries because there's a Bangla shop right down the sh- uh, you know, street and it's a walkable community. So yeah. you can walk to get your groceries, kind of like New York, but in, in Detroit in general, in, in Michigan, you do need a vehicle to be able to get around. And we don't have um, the subway. We don't have like taxi drivers everywhere. Yeah. It's more so in like at the airport, you'll be able to find a taxi. And obviously now everyone uses Uber. But in general, um, you know, you still have to have a, a car to get around. So I've been seeing that like newcomers, people like, for example, my relatives, like my dad applied for his siblings. They came um, in 2010, 11 and beyond. They've been able to come here, get settled within two, three years, be able to buy a house or at least one vehicle for their family and slowly move up that socio- socioeconomic ladder. Whereas like people in our families, um, you know, when they came in the 90s, or in the late 80s, they had to slowly build themselves up. They're also financially providing for their families back home. 
Um, and so it took a little bit longer to get established. And so I see, you know, those two things kind of happening in parallel. Um, a lot of people here have factory jobs, which is very important because, you know, for people who may have never worked in Bangladesh, never had to provide for themselves, dependent on others, they're able to come here and then now stand on their own feet. So that's super important in terms of job-wise being able to work here. Um, and to answer your question about when did people start coming to Michigan, you know, the New York Times actually recorded this immigration um, totally. that came. Yeah. So it was a lot of people, of course, came, you know, throughout the, 90, the 1990s, but a lot of people specifically came in the 1990s, the late 1990s, um, and then the 2000s. There was this thing called the second immigration from New York to the Detroit area, where, you know, there's an estimate that about like 10,000 or so Bangladeshis moved to the Detroit area specifically because of jobs and affordable housing, which is so important because we know that, you know, starting off life in New York is very difficult and very expensive. And um, now people are able to come here and slowly start their lives off. It's a lot less um, expensive. And also because there's such a large community here, people feel welcome and feel like there's a sense of a Bangladeshi community. Uh, even my family. So my family, uh, you know, I started off in New York when we first came. We lived there for two years and then moved to Florida. We came during the Gulf War. So my dad mm -hmm. had a hard time finding a job. Mm -hmm. So we moved to Florida and there was a Bangladeshi family there who helped us kind of get started. And at that time, like, you know, people like my dad, they had to start working in the restaurants. That was like their first step job to learn English and just get basic skills before they can build up. And after living there for eight and a half years without any family, without any relatives, you know, as one of the only Bangladeshi families in our neighborhood, we um, decided to move to Michigan when everyone was moving to Michigan from New York. Mm. Um, we kind of, it was kind of one of those things like you hear about it happening in the far distance and everybody's like, come, come join us. We're going to mm. build this new life and start, start off fresh. And it was funny because when I was a kid, I would tell people like, oh, I was born in Bangladesh. That was like my go-to like thing that would help me stand out in, in, in my school, right? I was the only Bangladeshi at some point, the only hijabi. And then when I moved to Hamtramck in two, uh, March 2000, it was uh, March 2000, it was so amazing to see so many people that look like me. And when I would say I was born in Bangladesh, they're like, so was I. <laughs> <laughs> it was no longer a punchline. It was nothing like unique, but it was, in, it was, I've never seen so many Bangladeshis in one place. I didn't know what it was like to be Bengali. It was like, learning a whole new part of me that I didn't even know existed. Um, and it was, it was very welcoming at the same time. Like just having people, finding people like your parents went to school with, like just mm. little things like that. And like learning little bits about your, your past, your history, and trying to figure out who you are beyond that point. So that happened like in the 2000s. And um, yeah, the, the community is growing all the time. And a lot of people that, you know, our parents' generation applied for are coming now. So there's, you know, a, like a hundred people sometimes coming at a time, right? Like to wow. town, like a couple, like four or five families just slowly coming in and integrating. Um, but and awesome. the, the growth I think is really in seeing like, um, you know, people running for office and opening businesses. These are kind of signs of our community growing and making um, space for themselves. Wow, I love that Detroit. Uh, I love all those things you said about Detroit because it's always been like a poster boy for a, a downtrodden city in the U.S. And it's great to see that it's coming back. Um, so you're saying fact a lot of the Bangladeshis work in factory jobs. What sort of companies? 
Yeah. So we have the big three here, right? So Ford, GM, um, and people are working there and a lot. And then, you know, not only are people working in factories, now we'll see like the younger generations, a lot of them are engineers there, right? They're mm. working for those companies. They're doing IT jobs. Um, people who work in the suburbs, a lot of them are engineers, doctors, you know, you name it, everything basically. So we have, a, a you know, a, per career, I would say there's a handful of people per, per profession now. Um, but it's important to have afford- affordable jobs and housing, you know, to grow communities. And I think a lot of people also live in the Hamtramck, Detroit area, specifically because of the community, you know, having masjids, having grocery shops. Uh, Hamtramck is like home, right? So when people do move out to the suburbs, they still come they, back. They, yeah. they still come back all the time. It's a very central place um, where people feel rooted. It's very typical of, of some of these neighborhoods in New York as well. So Jamaica, Queens, a lot of the folks that moved out to Long Island, Connecticut, they come back on the weekends to do their shopping. Same thing in Kensington, Brooklyn. So interesting seeing it everywhere. Another place I've recently been really uh, learning a lot about is Buffalo. A lot of Bangladeshis are moving to Buffalo, similar to what you just said, about people moving from New York because it's so expensive and Buffalo is a little bit cheaper. I'm just surprised Bengalis are okay, to, you know, okay with all the cold. I'm I'm really surprised. We're like warm-blooded people. Like I'm surprised. I'm surprised they're okay with that. But uh, I I really want. I've been waiting to get out to uh, Detroit. That's it's fascinating, though. Do you? Some of the women that you mentioned. Uh, do you think if they were in Bangladesh, they would be, still be able? They would still start businesses. That's an interesting question. I think that right now, because of social media, there's so much potential. Yeah. Like. I, I would, I would, I would say that if I said no, that wouldn't be true, right? Because a lot of people are just doing their business online, so you really could be anywhere in the world and still being able to do these businesses, right? And that's a that's a huge component of these online businesses that you could li- live in town and have a spot where you might have some of your products, or someone be able to come in and shop there, or or you can just simply ship it out to wherever in the world. And so I think that uh, something I've noticed is that. Even newcomers, like younger girls who are newcomers, they're able to come here and then just sell clothes online or, you know, make nasta, you know, because everyone really, we still love our samosas and our rolls, right? So like that's never going away. And like nowadays I see like younger girls making like fita and like just traditional things. And like we even have this one food blogger who's a guy who like, he learned how to make handesh, you know? And I like joke, like that's the one thing like our ancestors, (laughs) casual, like, cautiously pass on to the younger folks, right? It's like they hold on to that tradition of making handesh. It's usually the grandma or like the aunties, you know? It's never like the younger folks, you know, per se. And so when this like guy like learned how to make handesh, I was like, wow, like our generation is finally, we're kind of like coming up with this um, <laughs> space where we can all just coexist and figure out where we, where we fall into that line. And another thing is like fusion foods. It's so big, right? Oh yeah. So like, so like even if we don't really know a ton about our culture, or, or we're not able to make, perhaps tap into per- certain parts of it, we find it creative ways to like create new traditions and fusion ways of doing things. And that's a huge trend as well. So I've been seeing like, for example, the cakes, you know, like we make uh, wedding cakes with Bangladeshi themes, like Jolji, Sharani. Awesome. Like I've never seen that growing up. Like that's so amazing to see that we can find a little bit of ourselves and even those type of things. And um, one thing that is so great is that once somebody opens a business in the Bangladesh community, for the most part, everyone's supporting and rooting that person on. And, and whether that's buying from them or sharing their work, it's something that we're all proud of. Like we have that, 
you know, Bengalis, we have that thing. Like when we see that one person who becomes a doctor, we're like, oh yeah, that guy's from our community, you know, like that, that girl, you know, grew up in, in, in our community. Like we have that sense of pride for others. And, um, especially with the women, we're very like eager to cheer each other on. People are constantly tagging each other on social media or trying to find ways to collab or do expos together. So when one person is um, struggling in their business, someone else can also uplift them at the same time. Social media really is the equalizer. Um, and, 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 you know, not Facebook as much as you want. Even and I've seen in Bangladesh, people starting entire businesses, like you said, on Facebook. Um, and it's the barrier to entry is so, so small. I and mean, you just really just have to have a Facebook account, right? Um, anything surprise you from any of the interviews with the women? I think that, you know, I, I, want, I don't know if it would surprise me, but what I've heard constantly through the interviews is that we didn't really know what we're doing. We just had this passion and we kept working at it. And, and now it, it is because of those small steps that we took to get there. Um, and that we wish that we had more support and we had more people guide us through the process, but we figured it out and we're going to be okay. And another constant thing I heard was that Bengali women are resilient, right? So they've gone through everything and anything and they've supported a lot of people in the community, but it's kind of like, it feels like this is the time to shine, right? And while I wasn't surprised to hear that, it just was a little bit disheartening to hear that we're still kind of like struggling to um, be recognized on a community level. And I think that, you know, I hope that our communities are much more uplifting, you know, in all spaces that we have the we we come back and say, let's let's give back to our women and train them and uplift them and help them get on their feet and put them at the forefront a little more. Yeah, I think what you described is uh imposter syndrome and had this conversation with this Bangladeshi woman, woman who is at the State Department. She's very senior at the State Department. We had a long conversation about imposter imposter syndrome and how it's more common among um, overachieving people. So the more overachieving someone is, the higher, higher likelihood that they, they suffer from imposter syndrome. I feel like Bangladeshi women suffer from that. Yeah, um, I, would, I would say like, even for myself, I think when I was in my mid twenties and my kids were really little, I, I used to think like, okay, maybe this is it. Like, I'm never gonna really get back into what I set out to do in my life, right? So um, yes, I have a degree in journalism, and I know how to write, and I know that I have this, you know, ability to to tell important stories. But how am I going to do that while I'm balancing all these other elements of my life? You know, um, at one point I was living in a joint family, so you know you have a lot of different roles that you play. Not only are you raising your own kids, but you're giving back to your your. You have to maintain so many other relationships and other roles at the same time. But then I realized that, um, you know, it's it's sometimes like that passion. You might tell it to shush a little bit, but you can never really push it away. Your passion will always nag at you until you do something about it. And I remember asking myself, I said, is it really, you know, uh, can I really not pursue my passion because I'm a mom? Like, is that a really a good enough answer? Like, am I satisfied with that? And I kept saying, like, there has to be more, like, kind of like, there has to be more to life than this. I'm sure that, you know, when the time comes, I, I totally believe, like, everything happens in a due time. And when it's supposed to happen. And I always feel like 
for me personally, I always tried to stay networked with writers, even if it was a, like on a very minimal level, I felt drawn to that. You know, what are people doing in my um, network? What are people doing in my profession? How do I find my place in that space? And slowly but surely, I was like, okay, I just have to take a jump back into it. And then we'll see what happens from there. And, you know, and, and kind of like reassuring myself. And, and obviously, sometimes people are not telling you like, oh, you're a mom, you're a wife, you can't do X, Y, Z because you're a Bengali woman. They don't say it to you, but you feel that society pressure and you feel like you're doing a disservice to your family sometimes or your community by not being you know, available to help community or your family and you're trying to invest in yourself. So once you kind of get over that, for me personally, that was a, a challenging experience. I feel like I kept telling myself, once you, if you do get back into your profession, you're never going to abandon your family or abandon your community. That's not, that's not on your radar. You know, you're always going to still find ways to include them. And that's something that I'm very intentional about. You know, whenever I have the opportunity to write about my community, I, I take it, I leap into it. And the interesting thing in the writing community right now is that there is a growing need for BIPOC, you know, writers, and there is this eagerness uh. to learn from us, right? Whereas like when we were coming up in school, we were told we could not write about our profession. We cannot write about our communities. That's bias. You uh. can't talk about who you are. You have to leave that at home. And when you come to work, you write only what you're assigned to or whatever your editors give you. And you write about what's in front of you, right? So like news or events, whatnot. But I feel very drawn to what's happening in my community. Why are people in my community not being heard? Why are these issues not on the radar? Why are people not being interviewed for my community? Like all those questions used to always bother me so much. And then um, in 2018, I took, uh, I applied for this fellowship and I honestly didn't think I was going to get it, right? But um, Alhamdulillah, like the connections I had from back in my undergrad days, those kind of pulled me through and got me this opportunity because they remembered, oh yeah, she interned here like, you know, maybe 10 years ago, Mm. but you know, that name looks familiar. Let's see what she has to say. And we were finally told like, hey, this, in, this fellowship is about you and your community. Figure out what's the story in your community and tell it. And, and it's like that validating point came then. And then from there, it was like, there's no looking back. You know, now I feel like I can write about my community unapologetically. I write it in my bio. That I'm Bangladeshi American Muslim writer. Like there's no shame in saying that. You don't have awesome. to like, you don't have to put that in the closet and keep it there. You can talk about it. And, you know, now there, I, I want to also say that like the editors, my writing friends, the community of writers are so supportive about, you know, what I want to write. And they'll ask me to write specific stories that cater to those needs. And it feels like I'm seen and I'm heard. And I want to like give back to the community by, by sharing stories like that, where they feel that they're seen and heard. And I hear people tell me all the time now, like, wow, I really saw myself in that story. Or like, wow, that really resonated with something that I've experienced or, you know, my mom did that. And you wrote a story that really like made me think about her. Um, Things like that. So it's amazing to like be in this space now, but it's, it's also feels like surreal at times, you know, like being able to get out of that imposter syndrome and um, say that, you know what, I'm here to do the work now. And it's, (laughs) there's no looking back at this point. What's uh, next for you? So for me, I've always wanted to be a community um, resource, right? I always said that I'm a community reporter and journalist, and that's what I lean toward. 
So this year, you know, I was really inspired by all these amazing stories that I was collecting from different freelance projects and different projects that I was doing. I launched a website called uh, Sanasta Newsletter, where I talk about Bangladeshi food and culture. And I just hope to like grow that newsletter into a space where people can come and get, you know, important information that they need. And it's not, obviously, it's not only for Bangladeshi women, but it's a space that I would like to have as a third space, you know, that people can say, what's happening in that community? Let's look at this, you know, newsletter and we can find those important information or people that are doing amazing things and be able to then, re, you know, reshare those stories in other spaces. Um, and, and I think there's more to, to it, but I think that's like the gist of what I've always wanted to do. Um, I knew I wanted to be a journalist since I was in seventh grade. I'm sure I didn't know exactly what that meant at that point. Um, and by 19, I remember telling one of my, you know, teachers that like, watch one day I'm going to open a website and it's going to be about all the things that I wanted, you know, seen in, in writing and print and in videos, um, at some point. So that's what I hope to accomplish. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you for coming on, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to get this series of interviews up on the Boney Podcast and on, on our Instagram. I mean, they're really inspiring, and you're, you're really inspiring. So, you know, hope. I mean, representation is so important, and I hope people, uh, Bangladeshi young people, are inspired by these stories. Thank you so much for having me. The red and green I beat is always in my heart. Uh, I do it for my people. I gotta be honest With diamonds and pearls Yeah, yeah Bengalis in New York All over the world uh, It's the bony show uh, Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we spit To the gangs we with It doesn't matter We the essence of the Bangladesh I say, hey, come on Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live